Hello, I'm Diego Martinez, and welcome back to Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. As you know, this is the show where we take underappreciated anthems and explore their context and legacy with the help of our tune architects. Joining us on the second part of our season two premiere are once again British singer Princess and legendary pop engineer Phil Harding, who will go through the creative process behind the landmark 1985 recording of Say I'm Your Number One. Actually, it was quite funky, as that was known at the time. It had this beautiful rhythmic consciousness to it, and yet it was still quite melodious. It was a deceptively accessible melody. It sounded easier than it was. And for a vocalist, that's fun. You know, classic British soul of the mid-80s is, you know, and I do feel that it's up there with that. And a very special song, a wonderful vocal performance from Desiree. I mean, her vocal performances throughout the album are good, but that was the first one, and dare I say, probably the pinnacle. In our previous episode, we saw Princess develop her love for music, inspired by members of her family, the artistry of people like the Jackson 5 and Aretha Franklin, and a little help from above. When you sing in the final analysis, you must be carrying that which has inspired you within the song, within the tone, within the note. That's what you strive to do. That's what people respond to, consciously or unconsciously. It's that vibration, that sincerity, that authenticity that you bring to the note, to the expression of said note, rhythm, what have you. That's what people respond to. I feel. I won't stand up as if I'm the be-all and end-all authority on it, but that's what I feel. It was singing in Aretha's standard, her cover of Dionne Warwick's I Say a Little Prayer, that galvanized her brother Donovan Heslop into supporting and guiding her music career. I just kind of interjected and said, look, you know, this is a talent given to you by the Almighty, and the talents are never wasted because they're taken away and must be improved upon and expanded because that's what the creator um, requires of you. So I became a dedicated fan and someone who was willing to do whatever was necessary to ensure that she had an opportunity to sing because in the UK, it wasn't that easy to get that opportunity. Donovan's efforts, as well as Princess's own work as a session vocalist, for artists like Fleetwood Mac's founder Peter Green and Afro-rock band O.C. Bisa, led to a fateful opportunity to work with the fledging production trio of Mike Stock, Matt Aiken, and Pete Waterman, who were eager to continue their streak of success in the UK charts. That faithful opportunity came to Princess after Don suggested she take part in a London fashion show. She was all dolled up to impress the people in attendance, including a member of the SAW operation. Don was part of the organizational crew for a fashion show and felt that I would be a really good compare for the fashion show. And I thought, okay, you know, that'll be fun. 
had a wonderful royal blue lurex sequin dress for the whole occasion, blue hair. We were set. And I did this job comparing this fashion show. And someone who was there had been working with Saw, but actually liked me. I didn't know anything about me singing, of course, just heard me comparing this show and got in touch with us after the show and then found out that I sing and said, would we come to a session? Called us for a session at the early hours of the morning. We went on a night, don't talk me. We went for the session at the early hours of the morning after the rest of the most of the bulk of the work had been done. They needed some ad libs and everybody else had gone home. And they'd also said, you can go home, but we'd like you, that i.e. me, to stay. And would I give, do some ad libs, which I did and uh, left about six, seven o'clock in the morning and thought nothing more of it. Apparently that session was noted by the SAW team, but they couldn't find me, us in fact, for a year. A year later, they, I don't remember how we caught up again, how they got in touch with us, but they called me for a session and went to the session. Certain aspects of the session were a lot more accessible to me than the other person who was doing it. So she was sent home and I finished the session. Then Don waited and said, I like what they're doing. I think I'd like for them to work with you on your solo project. So he waited, I think a couple of hours to speak with Pete because he was told in terms of the business aspect of the team, one needed to speak with Pete Waterman. Pete Waterman already had a lifetime in the music biz before he laid his eyes on a young Desiree Heslop. He had his pulse on the young record-buying audience since his days as a DJ and an A&R man, working with acts like Musical Youth, Matt Bianco, Peter Tosh, and Lee Scratch Perry. At the start of 1984, he was approached by two musicians, lyricist Mike Stock and guitarist Matt Aiken, and saw great potential in their ability to craft powerful pop songs. The thing where Mike and Matt and Pete always says this as well, you know, they came into the situation as fantastic musicians who had done the sort of the cover band and wedding band circuit and had learnt the trade of playing other people's songs, how those songs are shaped and had the ambition to be writing and producing those types of songs themselves. This is PWL engineer Phil Harding, who worked alongside Stark Aiken and Waterman at the mixing booth. They came in with all of the musical knowledge and armory that, that, that you could want. Pete was really looking for a team that he could lead and Stock and Aiken were looking for an in into the industry to get their songwriting and production careers going, you know, and move out of the uh, covers band circuit, as it were. And they had invested in their own home studio, 24-track studio, to do that. Watch out, here I come. come, 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 come. Seizing on the popularity of the high-energy dance movement that took over gay clubs in the UK, the budding trio scored gold with songs like Hazel Dean's Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go, Divine's You Think You're a Man, and the decade-defining You Spin Me Round Like a Record by Dead or Alive. Saw was already taking cues from soul and R&B when they produced this monster hit. 
a key inspiration for You Spin Me Round, came straight from the chorus of a sleeper hit by none other than Luther Vandross. As the sound of American soul music made its way into the UK, Stock, Aiken, and Waterman continued experimenting in their Vineyard studio, producing the first and only album from a Warner Brothers act called Brilliant, fronted by vocalist June Montana, bassist Youth, and guitarist Jimmy Cauty. So it was during making that album that uh, Princess, or Desiree, <laughs> came in and was hired as a backing vocalist for a lot of those sessions. My recollection on that was that Desiree was one of two backing singers that the band knew, we didn't necessarily know as Peter well, but quite willing to, um, to use their singers, or singers they recommended. And, you know, June was a great singer in Brilliant, but she wasn't particularly powerful. You know, she had a lovely, smooth, soulful voice. And, you know, when Desiree and I can't remember the other backing vocalists came in with this great sort of sound of power of harmonies and backing vocals behind June, it was a great match. Her impressive vocal work and Don's persistence and belief in his sister's talent were the catalyst for Mike Stock and Matt Aiken to start working on a soulful demo session for Desiree. Among the tracks presented to the singer was one that originally was rejected by DC Lee and Eurovision winners Bucks Fizz. The next thing I know, another session was called where there were four demos I was given to listen to. I listened to two of them that I liked particularly. One of them turned out to be Samuel number one. I came and did the, the demo for Samuel number one, loved what we did. Came home, uh, got up the next morning, when didn't quite get up, was stretching very happily, thinking about the next song. In the stretch and my enthusiasm, I pricked my neck and couldn't do the next song. So Samuel number one, was for sure the choice for them to release. But they then gave it another incarnation that became this more smooth, as we say, SOS sort of influenced version. And that's how that came about. After the rough demo of Say I'm Your Number One was recorded, Mike Stock and Matt Aiken decided to model the production on the high-quality R&B style of the BB&Q band and the work Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did with the SOS band. If you think about 85, there was so much R&B soul, mainly from America, you know, smashing the charts here. Jam and Lewis being behind that surge. It was an experiment from my memory in terms of, okay, what do we want to do? You know, what, what do we, you know, we've got a great soul singer here who's a really powerful voice. 
let's try something quite down tempo and soulful and you know to me one of the most interesting things about it was Pete was going away for a week we'd been non-stop since we started and kind of left us with this project and in some ways that was somewhat of a relief to Mike and Matt because Pete would be there every day Pete's given us some references you know some Jam and Lewis type references with two or three records that he felt you know let's have the drums sounding like this let's have a bass line like that let's go this kind of tempo so there was a clear sort of platform there for Mike and Matt you know and I was just listening to the record and listing from a technical point of view what what some of the sounds were you know and that was unusual for us because it was a Simmons sample snare and a Simmons kick whereas we'd always be using Lin kicks for Dead or Alive and other projects like that and the big difference there is for the brilliant project we'd also been using an extra keyboard player a guy called Andy Stennett and he was the keyboard player with Freeze. Andy was down with these soul licks, as far as we were concerned, you know, um, doing all kinds of things with the Roland synth and other things that we had around in the studio. And, uh, you know, those soul keyboard riffs were, were, were him. And Mike had laid down the pads and, and strings. Matt's playing all those soul guitars. You know, he's a great guitarist. And the bass would have been Andy Stennett as well. That was another speciality from Andy's so we you know we had a lot of freedom and a fantastic groove created pretty quickly and I think Princess was pretty shocked when she came in to hear what the guys had set up for her actually it was quite funky as that was known at the time it had this beautiful rhythmic consciousness to it and yet it was still quite melodious it was a deceptively accessible melody you know it, you thought you could sing it it sounded easier than it was and for a vocalist that's fun so that's part of what its charm was to me. It resolves so beautifully. Whenever you listen to it, there's a part where it, it concludes nicely for you. You don't feel cheated. It was just silly things that we would just have a giggle about. And every now and again, you'd have Mike start to play a Stevie Wonder and say, which one's this one then? And I'd sing what it was. And, you know, we just had these beautifully, organically funny, fun, musical meetings. That's what I feel most particularly is captured in Samuel number one. Artistry was being experienced and appreciated. It wasn't about who did what, who. We just decided to make this really beautiful record. It was interesting because some a few other artists I was working with at the time actually criticized for the amount of reverb that we put onto Princess's vocal on the record but um it just for the tempo of the record it felt right to me to have her in that amount of reverb but uh, I suppose if I had any criticism looking back it could have been a bit drier you know possibly the American records weren't quite as swamped <laughs> um, but uh, the soundscape of the record is, is there's quite a lot of instruments going on but it doesn't sound like it we've made it sound simple and I think that's why I wanted to keep the vocal you know quite on its own and quite in a big reverb you know we were always worried as Brits copying the American sounds that we weren't close enough but I think by that time we had very similar equipment and very similar desks and outboard and reverb units and, all, uh, and so on. So it's, um, I think by that time, 85, you know, 12 years into the industry in studios, I was fairly confident and can quickly get 
sounds working so that's my contribution really more more than any kind of you know production or music just placing it all as an engineer this really was you know pretty much four or five days solid of concentrating on this one track and really getting it nailed from from every point of view my feeling was that mike matt and myself really felt that, that something special had been created and we're really excited to play it to pete on his return, which I can't remember if that was the end of the week or the start of the following week. But obviously, you know, hoping and praying that, that he liked it, that he felt that all the ideas that he'd fed to the team before going away had come to pass. And and, and my memory of the first playback to Pete was, uh, you know, he was almost having kittens. It was, it was, he was, he was excited as the rest of us were, had spent the time creating it that week. And that's not to say, you know, there could well have been plenty of changes <laughs> from the point where Pete came back and heard it that was that was quite typical of the time but yeah you know we felt we had created a new Stock Aiken Waterman PWL sound that was the, in, let's face it it was a million miles away from Dead or Alive Though it was essentially offered to other performers Desiree knew it was her song and she owned it through her vocal delivery, embodying the feelings inside the lyrics. I heard later on that it was being offered around, and I thought, well, it obviously was mine, you know, because I didn't lay claim to it in that way, although I had done just by bringing the honesty and the love to it. Because for me, I would hate to feel that I was encroaching on someone's right to enjoy being who they are in other words if i'm in a relationship if the person i'm with really feels they would like to experience someone else then all they should do is tell me let's not beat around the bush let tell me and then i can handle myself accordingly so say on you number one when we're together i must be number one you must treat me as if this is special because it is any time we all spend together is special Every part of the equation came beautifully, but only one remained. Donovan Heslop had yet another idea to launch his sister's career in style, with a striking stage name to boot. It really does start with Don coming around to where I lived and said to me, oh, you've got to listen to me, I've had this dream, and I know what your stage name is. You're going to be called Princess. I was like... No, no, I don't, no, I don't, I don't want to. I know I don't want to be called princess. I don't want any of that pressure. Desiree is a beautiful name. I don't want to do it. He said to me, you have uh, almost as if I had a duty to fulfill the gap that was being made in the musical royal pantheon. We had king, we had queen, we had prince. We didn't have a princess. So it must be that I should do it. And he kind of sold it to me. I said, I said, I don't need the pressure. He said, you can just be yourself and everything else will work out. And Pete's response was, was classic. No, no, he said, princess, princess. No, 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 that's a dog's name. We're not, no, we're not going to call her princess. Not princess, but princess. And Don said, yeah, but what have you been doing? You've said it about five times. And he stopped. Princess, he said. And Don said, I rest my case. Once he gave the thumbs up for Princess's new stage name, P 
Pete Waterman helped set up a label to release Say I'm Your Number One in the same building where the whole Saw operation was taking place. He collaborated with record executives Days Washburn and Nick East to create Supreme Records, a label that aimed to take the best of British soul music, break it in the clubs, and then put it in the mainstream. And that's exactly what they did with Princess's debut single. Say I'm Your Number One was the first release by Supreme in the summer of 1985. It became a top 10 hit in the UK and charted high in 10 other countries, including Australia, the Netherlands, New Zealand, West Germany, and the US club charts. Its popularity was boosted by a memorable and unapologetically British music video which showcased Princess roaming around various London landmarks atop of a double-decker bus. I'm always better served when I can get into the song. Then it's not too much about that people are watching in the same way as connecting, because I am connected with the song and I'm presenting that connection to the people who are watching and listening. So that helped me deal with the fact that I was, you know, on a public highway singing. <laughs> <laughs> I was busking. <laughs> so, you know, there are beautiful things about it that I can carry forever. That was the beauty of that shoot. I, it was my first one, but I was, it's probably the most comfortable I ever have been. Now I think about it, it probably was because I was just having a lovely time and and I'd found the number one earring, which was, if there was never an omen there, there was. There was the omen. I'd found a number one earring to put and wear. It was just one of those times when the, your first time was the best. <laughs> Throughout 1985 and towards the end of the following year, Princess recorded and released four other singles three of them charting inside the UK Top 40, and all included on her self-titled debut album for Supreme, which peaked at number 15. By then, Stock, Aiken, and Waterman were heavily involved in shaping their own superstars, not just their sound, but their overall image. They seemed to perceive Princess in a different way than her manager and brother, Don. And that was expressed in comments Mike Stock made to music magazine Smash Hits in 1987. He said, quote, Her brother wanted her to be racy and raunchy and hard and aggressive, hence calling her the female prince. But we saw her as a much softer figure. Don Heslop has this to say about what caused the end of the working relationship between Princess and Saw. We must be absolutely clear. This is 1985 United Kingdom. The UK, as in all Caucasian-laid organizations, world powers, whatever they are, seem to be intrinsically racist in how they observe people. So I would do something on behalf of my artists that was specifically for her benefit, didn't harm them in any way, shape or form, but showed that it was in fact something that was beneficial to her so she could give her best to the project that she was dealing with. 
then once you don't do as the producer, director, whoever it is that's giving you instructions, and you say, but by the way, may I suggest do this instead because the artist will work better. These people normally, their egos get messed up and they, they can't handle and they say you're difficult. So whatever occurred, one was a misunderstanding with um, Pete of something that occurred. And the other was the entrenchment of a behavior that comes with saying that you're not even allowed one mistake. And no mistakes were made. There were just some unfortunate incidents that occurred. And when explanations could have um, sorted it out, people didn't want to talk. I will think the best of you for as long as I can. I'll see you do something that looks a bit whack and still say, oh, well, maybe it's a bit off today and give you another chance. And then there's a point at which I feel that, no, you're not, you're actually doing this willfully. You're, you, this, I can't excuse you anymore. Then I'm not the person you should deal with. You need to leave. We need not to be doing anything together because you've lost the plot. The basis of all that we do is a mutual respect, if not love. We respect each other's place in this actual experience that we're having. When things start to take off, our relationship was at the foundation of the wonderful stuff that we did. So when that relationship starts not to reflect the wonder that it was in the beginning, you already start looking at whether you can remain where you are because it's no longer where it was. For engineer Phil Harding and for the team at PWL, the way things panned out between the parties resulted in a missed opportunity to create more timeless records. We never quite returned to the success of Save Your Number One in terms of the sole R&B genre with either any of the Princess follow-ups or with the Three Degrees or other records like that that we made. And I think that's because Chicago House hit pretty quickly after that in 86 and we locked onto that very fast and turned it into what some people now call the, the kind of London House sound, the way we commercialised it with Mel and Kim. <laughs> It's a great shame that we didn't go further. Uh, it really was. And but I don't think it was anything between them personally or personality-wise or, or, or the desire to do more. I think it was more of a business thing between her manager and the, the business people at PWL and, uh, and Supreme. So, yeah, so it was, it was a great shame that we didn't go further. After leaving Stock Aiken and Waterman and Supreme Records, Princess signed a lucrative deal with Polydor and released her second album, all this love to a lukewarm reception in her native country. She recorded one more album in 1990, which was never released. Princess then moved to America, where she resumed her session work and was credited on Vanilla Ice's 1990 debut album, To the Extreme. Princess continues to make music together with her brother and manager, Don Heslop. In 2014, she released The Emergence, her first studio album in 27 years. She plans to release new music very soon. As for engineer Phil Harding, he has embarked on a series of university lectures across the UK 
written a book on pop music production, and has kept the soft flame alive with another publication dedicated to his time with the production trio, PWL from the factory floor. The music Princess created with Stock Aiken and Waterman, and specifically Say I'm Your Number One, is as vibrant today as it was back in 1985. To celebrate its staying power, she's performing all the tracks from her self-titled LP in an intimate, on-demand concert broadcast all over the world via streaming. Princess has always been who I am. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not putting an act on. This is who I am. When I'm projecting that on a larger level in a more colorful way, sonically and visually, it's me in Technicolor. I'm not doing somebody else. I'm doing me, but the best version of me I can bring to you. And because I'm actually, at essence, it can sound cliche, but I'm truly quite a loving person. I, I love people. I love this experience that we're having. And that's what I feel I bring to the live experience. I love the fact that we're alive at this point, at this time, sharing this sonic journey that is also still a mystery to me. Who is here right now as an artist? I am also about to experience myself because I've been undercover working with the recordings, working with other projects that we are developing. And I haven't really been in performance mode as princess and this is the most beautiful experience in terms of using my first true album as the way to say thank you so much for loving what we did enough to buy this and make this part of the music pantheon and before i leave this particular plane i'd love to present it live to the people who loved it and seemingly me as well, and us at that point. And then also the people who have come after us and then said, oh, I knew heard this song, but I didn't know anything about her or the production unit or anything about the story. I want to hear more. I'd love for them to be a part of the experience at this point too, because we're all discovering together who Princess is now. Both Princess and Phil Harding fondly recalled how a legacy record like Say I'm Your Number One has impacted the lives of everyone involved, a testament to the extraordinary talents of a group of writers and producers and a one-of-a-kind vocalist. The legacy of looking back at it now, it's interesting because I've read that book, uh, is it by John C. Grove about Max Martin? He's called, initially called it the Hit Factory book and he was quite derogatory <laughs> towards Stockading Alderman because it didn't last very long. But my my view is when, I, you know, if I look back at some of my old diaries and so on, it's, just, it's the amount of success that we had that's initially astonishing and that's a great legacy but records that still do sound great today and this and this is a, a good example and they really do sound like legacy records and, and and it's great that a lot of DJs still enjoy playing them. It's heartening to know that as artists when you do what you do there are those that take it into the, the, the very core of them and enjoy what you worked so hard you and your whoever your supporters are whether you're, if it's management, whether it's your co-writer, whether it's all these cats that I see, even my brother Don, management, producer, co-writer, and, and dare I say, co-stylist, we, we could go on. 
you share this experience and when you share that experience with a larger crowd of people and they say, yes, we loved it. it there's nothing like it. You can't really express how it feels because when you know that you meant to just, you meant for it to be a, a transporting experience when you, when you did the vocal, you wanted the person to come where you went as much as they could. And when you feel that you've managed it, it is somewhat humbling. Having that sense of wonder is one of the biggest gifts of all. I don't think we should lose it. I think as artists, we should still be like stoked about the fact that people get off on, we do, on what we do. Enjoy it, I'd say it means something to their lives. That is, that is what, come on, it's beautiful. If you want to join the broadcast of Princess's self-titled album, be sure to follow our social media channels where we will be posting the event details. Thank you very much to Princess Donovan Heslop and Phil Harding for all of their contributions to this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was produced and hosted by Yostruli, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nick Fresh Buzo, and our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow Tunes all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. And become a part of our community on Patreon, where you can find early access to our content, after show discussions, and much more, starting at $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash tunespod. Don't forget to rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back for more explorations on underrated tracks and the figures behind them on the next episode of Tunes. Tunes.